Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Hi, everyone. I am going to pop in here and do a mini episode because I have been thinking a lot about the logistics of parenting and the utter miscommunication or lack of awareness around what it takes to have children in one's life and why that can be such a burden and such a jump and such a gap and leave so many women in particular, but parents in general, unprepared for having children. That's what today's episode is about. And I think it's really deeper than I even understand. So I'm going to talk it out with you all. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as we get into today's episode. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Before we begin this episode, a heads up to everyone that the Wise Women's Council is now here. For those of you that have been waiting to hear about the Mastermind, it is now open and we are accepting applications until the middle of February. As you know, if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, every year we gather a group of women together for nine months to learn from each other, to go deep, and to meet regularly for advice, for wisdom, and for sharing with each other around the journeys of parenting, business, and entrepreneurship. Applications are open right now, and we will close up applications in mid-February. Get your application in early to be considered on a first-come, first-served basis. We already have filled half of the spots in this community, and we're looking for the rest of the class. Don't wait until the last minute. Here are my two cents for getting applications in. Done is always better than perfect when it comes to applying. Don't worry about having a perfect application. Just get something in and go to startuppregnant.com slash WWC, that's for the Wise Women's Council. Get all the details and fill out your application. I also learn so much just by filling out application and it puts my brain into a better mindset when I am applying to different residencies or programs. Just the connections and the thoughtfulness of the questions and having to reflect can be a really useful process. So go fill it out, do it, see what happens. And if you are one of my longtime listeners finding this podcast in the future, and it's no longer February, first of all, congratulations, it's not winter anymore. And second, if you are interested in our annual mastermind program, go to startuppregnant.com, get on the email list so that I can email you when applications open up again. We also teach master classes and we have lots of mini books and goodies on our website. So get on our email list. And for those of you that want to join the mastermind this year, go over to startuppregnant.com slash WWC so that you can apply. I can't wait to see you and meet you if you are applying to join our community. Now let's get on to today's episode. So lately I have been talking to people who are pregnant and they are planning on having kids. And I ask what I feel like are a couple of innocuous questions. I want to get a sense of what people are planning for in terms of time off or paid leave or unpaid leave, what the possibilities are for them with their work, and what they're planning to do with their jobs or their work schedules when children arrive on the scene. 
And so here's one conversation I recently had. I was talking to somebody who was pregnant and I asked, I said, so how much leave are you able to take? How much time are you going to take to recover? And they said they had six weeks of paid leave from their company and they were going to take another six weeks of unpaid time off for 12 weeks. And I said, okay, great. You know, from what I've read and from the World Health Organization, that is like really, it's really hard to take less time than that. And yet so many women do because that's all that's provided and or they need to go back to a job. We can get into on another episode why six months should be the standard, especially in the United States, should be a no-brainer because of the recovery time for the mom and because of the adjustment period and the learning curve of a new child. When people come to me and they talk about taking eight weeks or 10 weeks or jumping right back into work, there's a real gap between the amount of work that a kid is going to take and the amount of time it's going to take to recover and how much time and bandwidth you'll have to be able to do the work. There's no vacation. There's no resting. There's broken sleep. Like I don't know anyone that's been able to do 90 days in a row of not sleeping after surgery while providing for around the clock feeding and caring of another human being and then also been able to manage a job. It's just a really, really impossible predicament that we put people in. But I want to skip over that because we've had Lauren Smith Brody on the podcast and we've talked to people about the postpartum period. I want to talk about the next period, the part that's after the birth and recovery and after the fourth trimester. What happens when you return to work and what did those schedules look like? So in this conversation I was having with This woman who was pregnant, she said, well, I'm going to go back to work. And I said, what do your work hours look like right now? And she said, oh, I work. I don't work that much. Well, I work, you know, standard work hours, about 7.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that was my first, my eyebrows raised a little bit. I was like, okay, that's right. So many companies and corporations have moved away from working from 10 to 6 or 9 to 5. And our work hours have gotten longer and longer in different industries where people will show up at work around 8 seven thirty, eight, nine, but then they will work till six, seven, or eight at night or later. We got into the logistics of the type of work that she does and she travels a lot. She just took a new leadership position and she said, I was a little unsure about taking the position because it required more travel, but I travel every other week. And I said, okay, and what are your plans for childcare? What does childcare look like for you with this job? What does your partnership look like? Are you in a partnership? Do you have family around? She lives in a rural area. She doesn't have any extended family around. And it's hard to find a nanny in her location where she lives. So she said that she's starting to look at daycares. So here's where I want to get into logistics with people listening. And because I just, I don't understand, I do understand, but I always struggle because there's such a gap. We do such a disservice to everyone by not understanding and having like an open awareness around what it takes to take care of a child and what a child's schedules are like. And this is not something that's unique to this person that I was talking with. This is something that like you go back to me and my 27-year-old self and many people in our 20s, like even people who have gotten pregnant and are having children – We don't have a consciousness around what is a child schedule like and how is my life going to change? So there's a couple of attitudes and presumptions here that like, I want to take thousands of podcast episodes, but to lay it to us all straight and break down some of this and realize like how we are perpetuating this problem. 
What I get the sense from when I talk to a lot of people about this, people who are heading into, well, I'm going to have kids, I'll have them later, I'll have them in about five years, or we're trying to get pregnant now. We have this kind of cognitive block, this psychological block of thinking about what happens after maternity leave and into how children are going to change and affect our lives. And the underlying presumption or attitude is that my life doesn't have to change, my life won't change, and I can keep doing everything that I'm doing and just have a child in addition to the current existence of my life. I find this now that I'm, quote, on the other side, incredibly bizarre. And I used to think it as well, but you are inviting an entirely new human into your life. When you are dating someone, when you are marrying someone, your life changes a lot. Like you start to make decisions differently. You might make compromises. You might make different choices. You may do things together that you wouldn't have done alone. You might do things <laughs> together in completely different ways. You may choose to change your behaviors and your habits. Like There's so many ways that things change when you invite new people into your life. And yet, with the advent of a baby, it seems like, and I think this is maybe psychological safety, it's like, well, if I just buy the right stuff, it'll work. And I'll keep doing my job. And there's also a little bit of I think denial, right? Because it is so overwhelming and hard. But there's also this attitude of, well, I'll be the one to be able to make it work. If I just have enough systems and tools, and if I take care of myself and I do self-care, or I make enough money or whatever it is, then I'll make it work. I won't be one of the 30% of women that drop out of the workforce to become a mom. I won't, like, I'm only a mom. It won't happen to me because I'm different. And when we interviewed Annie Dean on the podcast, she talked about how 30% of women, talented women who want to work, drop out of the workforce, not because they want to, but because the advent of parenting and working is untenable. And they can't find childcare, adequate childcare. Their work isn't supportive of them, and they weren't prepared for what was coming. And I find this kind of devastating because women who want to be working and families that need parents to be working, or single moms, or any situation that you have, people aren't able to do the things they want to do because we've set the circumstances up so poorly and we haven't communicated what it actually takes. And this lack of understanding perpetuates across our work colleagues and the ethos that we live in that makes it even harder. So when I thought about doing this episode today, I thought about like talking through the logistics of a child's schedule and the nuts and bolts because it's, and there's, everybody can adjust and modulate their family. There's so many different ways to have your, the logistics of the schedule, but there are a couple of things that are pretty standard that I think it's really hard to fathom and understand how this will affect your life. But for example, little babies and children tend to sleep 12 hours at night, maybe not consecutively, but they sleep a lot. And 12 hours is 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. It's a lot of sleep. Some babies, it's more like 10 at night. Others, it's more. And their total overall sleep like when they're first in the world can be 16 to 18 hours a day. And then toddlers will be about 12 to 14 hours a day. So what that means is that they will be going to bed at 6, 7, or 8 p.m. Some families might be a little later, like 9 p.m. It all, you know, the actual hours of the clock can vary. But there have been studies that talk about when kids wake up and they are so attuned to the sun and the clock that the rhythms of the day, the circadian rhythms, that 
Almost all children everywhere wake between 6 and 8 a.m. They just don't sleep in. So if you are somebody that sleeps until 10 a.m., this is going to be really challenging because that's going to end. Unless you have a partner and you swap back and forth or you have a morning nanny or you have family or in-laws, there's going to be a difference in the morning schedule. I find the morning schedule to be one of the most challenging things. So if you are planning on having a child and you want to spend any time with them at all, then what you'll need is to either have morning time with them or evening time with them or both. And this is where the math starts to get a little bit tricky. But say your family wakes up around 6.30 and you spend an hour or so in the morning getting a child ready. And I'll quote my friend Margo here because she said, I've tried everything I can to get my child ready faster, slower. I've changed the rhythm, the sequencing. It just always takes 45 minutes from when they wake up. Like there's just, I can't make it any faster. So there's getting the child ready and then there's getting yourself ready. And there's the commuting. You may have a nanny that comes to your house. So let's say you wake up at 630, you get your child ready for the day, or you get yourself ready for the day. Your nanny shows up at 730 and then you leave. Wonderful. Or there's two commutes. You have to take your child and get them into a vehicle or a subway or a bicycle or walk them to the child care location. That's going to add the 20, 30 minutes to that time frame. So it's 7.30. You're now getting them out the door. You get them to their child care center at 8 o'clock. You don't just drop them off like a takeout box. You have to take them into the building often and the drop-off can take, let's call it 10 or 15 minutes. So now it's 8.15 in the morning. Now you have to get yourself from that location to the next place, which is your place of work. And depending on where the daycare center is located and where your work is located, you need to, there may be more adjustments or more commuting. Maybe it's across town. So now you're getting to your workplace. Maybe you stop for a cup of coffee because it has been a long morning because your child actually woke up at 5.45 a.m. and you haven't eaten yet. So you stop for your coffee, you grab your food or your snack, and then you get to work. Yay, you got to work by 9 a.m. For people who start the day at 7.30, you've now lost an hour and a half of your normal working life. And maybe, and this is where I think it gets even more insidious, is that some people who start work don't realize that they start work before the clock starts, especially knowledge workers in the knowledge working economy. People may wake up at 6 a.m. and read the news for an hour and then sip their coffee and then their brain percolates on ideas. And then they get to work by 9 a.m. having listened to an entire podcast and they feel ready and fresh. And now you have been yelled at by a toddler, you've put 14 pairs of pants on, the coffee's been spilled on your pants, your hair has egg whites in them, you didn't actually put makeup on, you feel frayed and at the end of your rope, you've been working steadily for three hours in the morning and you get to work and you're like, okay, what the heck? I just need to stare out a window for 10 minutes just to regain and recover my sanity. And if you have a little baby, uh, now I need to go pump, right? I've now been away from my child and now I need to go pump. Now, if you are in a daycare center, most daycare centers give you eight or nine hours, so from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. But if you dropped your child off at 8 a.m., then you need to be back by 4 or 5 p.m. to not start having overage charges from that daycare. And many daycare centers close promptly at 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m., and they don't work later at night because the people who provide childcare also have children at home or families at home, and they need to leave their job and go to work. So for you to be back at the childcare center by the end of the day, and maybe it's not you, maybe it's your partner, maybe your co-parent is now taking a different schedule and they start work at 6 a.m. so they can leave 
at 3.30 or 4 p.m. and get to the childcare spot. But these are the logistics of the schedule that I find so many people, like, I wish that I could give, and maybe I need to make this, but I wish I could give like an hourly planning schedule for the morning hours from 6 to 10 a.m. and the evening hours from like 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Like what exactly happens and how do you fit a full night's sleep in for you and feeding and clothing and doing all the things that you need to do? Now, there are lots of different family dynamics and parents can share the logistics of who drops the children off and who picks them up and Sometimes you can get a nanny, which can be easier because they're in your home, but there are challenges there because the nanny will probably take holidays or sick days. And if they're not able to show up to work, finding backup childcare or alternative childcare for the days when you're just blitzed and you don't even have backup can be challenging as well. In addition, there are employment limitations for the number of hours an au pair or a nanny can work. So you can't necessarily have somebody working more than 50 hours a week before you need to start implementing overtime pay and vacation pay and sick pay. And so the cost can get really expensive. If you are a like high-powered, high-profile working woman, some people, what they end up having is they have a daycare service, they have a morning nanny, and they have an evening nanny. And they do not see their children very often. They actually see their children occasionally when they leave work early and then on the weekends, but they may also have a nanny on the weekends. The thing is, is that this can be prohibitively expensive to have this much childcare for people who aren't making a lot of money. If you are in a job where you are making 60, 80, or even $100,000 per year, and you are now trying to afford childcare full-time nine hours per week, plus after-school care or early morning nanny, the cost of an au pair, I believe it can be about fifteen dollars to $20,000 per year. The cost of childcare is about the same as state tuition. The best equation I've figured out for childcare is that it's about the same cost as a two-bedroom apartment wherever you live. So in New York City, it can be about $2,000 a month to $3,000 a month for childcare for full-time, all-day, five days a week childcare, nine hours a day, 45 hours per week. And then my friends in Michigan, it's like $900 a month because the cost of living is different and the wage differences are different. It's comparable. So estimate approximately a two-bedroom rent. Why is it different across different places? Well, because the childcare center is renting a unit and they're paying salaries for people who are also renting homes and they need to pay people who can afford to live there. That's why it's so expensive where I live in New York City. Whew. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot of logistics. Are y'all with me? The reason I wanted to bring this up today and the reason I want to talk about it in such detail is because I find that this becomes one of the most maddening and frustrating aspects of parenting because people aren't prepared for how much the morning and the evening routine changes and how much their ability to work is contingent upon good quality early childhood care and having people that they can rely on and having enough people that they can rely on to help with this equation. Part of the reason it's so challenging is because historically for about 50 to 75 years, we had this myth of the nuclear family with a stay-at-home wife, a stay-at-home mom. For those of you who don't know the historical context, what's really fascinating about this is that the rise in the height of a white woman staying at home and being a primary homemaker happened around the same time, 1930s, 40s, and 50s 
around the same time as the height of television. So we captured this image, this idea, and we crystallize it in our minds with the Levittown urban infrastructure and the Leave it to Beaver moment. And so we all have this collective visual history of the way that a family is supposed to look, the nuclear family, the stay-at-home wife, again, it's a white woman. It's not necessarily all women, right? Like history is different for different races and classes. And we have relied on that idea, especially in American history, to think like, oh, well, that's what we're supposed to do. There's a wife who stays at home who manages the children. That is not historically for hundreds of years how the family structure has been, especially when you go back pre the Industrial Revolution and you look at the ways that families and agriculture and farms worked. This is not all of history, but it happens to be our recent cultural memory. And so we have this idea that women should stay at home. And the related infrastructure of our knowledge worker economy and our work world was built off of that. So most of, and this is a concept called the ideal worker, and I learned about the concept of the ideal worker through Bridget Schulte's book, Overwhelmed. And she talks about how the ideal worker is the person who you want to hire in your company is a single or married male who has the luxury and freedom of being able to work flexible hours, starting early in the morning and working late at night. And they don't have to manage a home and they don't have to manage children and they don't even have to manage parts of their own life because the laundry is taken care of for them, because food is taken care of for them, because they arrive home and dinner is on the table. That is the ideal worker. The ideal worker doesn't have to take sick days because they don't get sick that often and they don't have to be responsible for other humans or children. So they're not going to have to leave often. This is where the modern 52-week year, two weeks of vacation policy came from. This is like crystallized in the Mad Men era. And so we are working in a world of work that was designed for people that don't have or don't acknowledge children and that have stay-at-home wives that are supporting them in their careers. There was a brief moment in history when the salaries of these ideal workers were enough to accommodate a family. They were family salaries. Not for everyone again, but for some folks. And so these family salaries, people who are making enough money to support somebody else at home, made it possible for this kind of division of household labor. We don't live in that world anymore. The majority of women, it's something like 60% of women, are now either primary breadwinners or co-breadwinners for their families. More women than not work. Women are working and both parents are working. We are living in a time when we have two income families and it's not possible for one person to make the income to cover the entire family. So what we're doing is we're shoving this idea of work, we're shoving our lives into this idea of work and then people, especially women, because women are saddled with the idea that you're also gonna be a homemaker and take care of all the children and the logistics, women are saddled with trying to fit into an ideal worker schedule and then it breaks. It breaks down. And it's not the six weeks or 12 weeks of leave, which is super problematic, but it's the time after when you realize that I can't make it to work by 7.30 in the morning and now my work colleagues are looking at me like, oh, she's just not that dedicated. Because we're not having this conversation about the fact that work is broken and childcare is broken and that parenting is a thing that we are all responsible for as a society. We should all be invested in the future of our children. Why? 
it's not because some people choose to have children and other people don't choose to have children. If we don't have children in our society, then we are not a society. We are living in the handsmaid's tale. Like if we don't have more children, our society is going to end in approximately 90 years once the last people die off. We are all invested in having children and children grow up to become people who go to schools, who help employ teachers, who end up being tax-paying citizens who become our future employees who end up creating businesses. They're a functioning, vibrating part of our society and our economy, and they're actually really useful for other people. People who don't have children benefit a lot from children for various economic and social reasons. Okay, welcome to my Friday morning sermon. I'm recording this on a Friday, and apparently I have a lot to say about this, and it all starts with the logistics of childcare. So the things like if I could go back and tell my 27-year-old self something or my pregnant self something, I know that it is already completely overwhelming to be pregnant and to be dealing with just the pregnancy part of things. And looking down the pipe and trying to figure out what's coming next can be completely overwhelming. So if you are kind of shutting down and blocking things out, I mean, all I can say is I did too. It took me a while. It took me a while to really see all the things that were happening. But the first thing to acknowledge and I think to own is the idea that your life is going to change. I am baffled that we still take the idea that our life is not going to change for granted. Well, I'm just going to be able to keep doing the same thing. And the way to own this is to when we talk to our peers and we're pregnant and they say, oh, well, will you still be able to work? You say, it's a whole new frontier. Of course, my life is going to change. There's a new human coming in. I love my work and I love my job. And we'll probably have to work out some scheduling logistics. But take it for granted and clue people in. If we pretend that we can keep doing things the way that we're doing them, we're doing everyone a disservice, especially ourselves. And I know that this is a challenge because you'll get pushback from other people that say, oh, once you become a mom, you aren't as committed. There is so much anti-mom bias. And I do not like that it is on the responsibility of the people who are undergoing this huge transformation and doing the incredible work of being pregnant and bringing a child into the world and starting a family to then be saddled with the asinine attitudes of other people that just say, oh, moms don't want to work as hard. I mean, I've got a big middle finger raised right now for that. However... What we're going to do is we're going to take ownership over it and we're going to start with the little pieces. And the more that you can stand up and say, without emotion, right, this is really important in the logistics, but just you own it with a casual tone where you're just like, of course my life is going to change. I'm having a child. Like, what do you expect? <laughs> you, like, the better it can go. And I also find that addressing it with solutions-oriented mindset, say, oh, hey, my schedule is going to have to shift a little bit because we have a child, but I still love this job and I love my work, let's figure it out. Here are a couple of options. I was thinking I'd probably start later in the day because most of the meetings are in the afternoon or I'm going to have to leave at 5.30 to do pickup for my kids every day and I can't just leave them on the side of the street. So I'm going to be leaving earlier and I'm going to do my later shift from 7 to 8 just to catch up on anything we might need. Anyway, we can shift our meeting structure to do 1 p.m. instead of 2 p.m. as our meeting start times so that it's easier for me and all the other future parents that are coming to our company. Things like that. You can be an advocate for change. And the more you share what's happening and explain like, hey, this is what's happening and this is the consequence and here's a solution I found, the easier it can go. We are not alone, but there are other countries that do not have these kind of problems because they stop work at four. 
one of the biggest things that we could do to change the world of work for parents and probably keep women employed for a lot longer is to stop the workday at the same time that school stops. Here's another scheduling thing that's going to blow your mind. Schools get out at 2.20. What? Sometimes 2.30, sometimes 2.50. Schools are 8.30 to 2.30. Walk that through your mind. This is the one that I still haven't wrapped my head around. It's like, okay, we're leaving at 7.45 to take my kid to kindergarten, so I'm going to get to work at 9, and then I have to leave work at 1 to go get my children from school at 2.20? What? Where do these children go? What do I do? I mean, I've already looked up the after-school programs, and they are going to be enrolled in chess club or ballet or whatever it is from 3 to 4 that's on campus at their school. And I have deliberately set up my entrepreneurial life so that I can be done with work by four most days. Because I want to have children and I want to spend time with them. I love my work and I love my job. And there are times when I go and I take a Saturday and I work an extra eight hours because I need that time to get more writing done. And my husband and I are talking about swapping long days so that he picks up the kids three times a week at four and I pick up the kids twice a week at four. And the other days we work till 5.30 and then we're all home for dinner. But it's still a newsflash time awakening moment where you're like, wait, school stops at 2.30? What happens to the kids? Never mind, and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but never mind that school is not every day of the year so that when kids get to school, it's something like 180 days they're in school. There's 365 days on the calendar. All those staff development days, all those half days, all those holidays, like where do the kids go, right? That's something we all have to figure out. So as you plan ahead for your life, because your life is going to change, right? Like that's the first thing I think that we need to own. Your life's going to change and that's okay, right? How is it going to change and how can we plan ahead for it? And what do we need to do to make it work? Maybe you have a family around and they come over in the morning and they watch the kids from seven to nine while you leave for work and they take the children to childcare. Be honest about what you need and look at the calendar closely. And then when other people ask you how you do it, talk about it. Talk about the fact that you have family that's helping you for two hours in the morning or the fact that you have childcare and a nanny. I remember Sheryl Sandberg got a little bit of flack in her lean in because people didn't, I think she didn't mention with full transparency that she had multiple nannies. Right? To be able to work that kind of a job, she needed three or four people at home to help her with her role. Look at the cost of what that's going to be. What does it cost to hire an au pair, somebody who might live with you, who there's limits to how much they can work. They cannot work more than, I believe, 40 or 45 hours per week, and they're required to have time off and days off plus supplemental pay. So look up what it's going to take. Maybe you do an au pair plus a daycare. Do you have the budget for $40,000 a year plus employer taxes to do this? It's really challenging. The state of the United States right now in terms of solving these problems for working parents and creating paid leave policies as well as reasonable and affordable childcare options is abysmal. It is terrible. So you are heading into something that is really hard for a lot of people. And every state can be different too. I know people who have even more trouble finding childcare in different areas of the country. So this brings me to point number two, which is that not being honest about childcare is part of the problem. When we don't talk about it openly and honestly and say, hey, our childcare options are limited and they stop at six every day, and when we pretend that it's not happening, we get ourselves into more trouble and we don't transmit the knowledge that needs to be transmitted to non-parents and our colleagues. 
if as pregnant women and as 20-year-old women who are planning on having children in the future do not know about this, how can we expect our work colleagues or our other partners or the future people that we want to be dating or our employers to know anything about this? The more open we are and the more we talk about this, the easier it is going to be to change hearts and minds. I find it doesn't take reasonable people long to understand when I give them enough information that they can see what the problem is. And I mean, this is not an option for most people, but if you explain it to people and you have a work colleague and you say, hey, I'm having a child, we're going to have to shift my work hours around. I can't work late until seven or eight every night unless I have extra childcare options. So can we push back? If they say, well, you're not going to be able to keep your job anymore, or that's just unreasonable, then what they are doing is discriminatory and they are saying that they will only hire people that have lots of money to pay for childcare or people that don't have children. That's the kind of world that we live in. So to change that, we all need to be a lot more honest about childcare. This means on social media, when you are out and about by yourself, where are the children? Where did they go? We need to change our cultural knowledge around what it takes to take care of children, how much time it takes, and who helps and supports us. Don't lie about having somebody who helps you, and don't hide your children from your camera, and don't hide your nannies. I mean, you don't have to post photos of your nannies, but you can acknowledge that there are other people helping you. Pretending that you can do it all just hurts women down the line especially. Remember that the world has changed. We don't have wives. We don't have stay-at-home wives for the most part. The idea of a stay-at-home mom is a limited luxury that tends to be reserved for very wealthy white people. This is a classist and a racist institutional infrastructural thing that is perpetuated as normal, and it is not necessarily normal. This is not to say that being a stay-at-home mom is something that is bad. It is just not available to a lot of people. And it's important to know and to acknowledge that there are a majority of women that need to or have to work to support their families in order to have children at all, and that the idea that they would just stay at home is really hard. Now, some people choose to stay at home or are forced to stay at home because their employers won't keep them, they discriminate against them, or because the cost of childcare is so prohibitively expensive and the type of job they have does not create enough cash flow for their family. But that's an important distinction because they wanted to work and couldn't. And then also notice that over the last 40 years, the nature of how we work has changed. The type of job has become more demanding, especially in blue collar or the assembly line kind of work. There's no more casual flipping burgers. Everything is militant and really reduced. The number of labor protections and the minimum wage is not supportive of people who are working and not in line with reality. The costs of our world have gone up. The cost of living has increased tremendously, and there has been wage stagnation. So... We're not making more money than we were 40 years ago, necessarily, and the work that we're doing requires longer and longer hours and more unpaid outside work in order to make the same kind of money, which doesn't go as far because the cost of living has increased. All right. Not to be a completely doomsday podcast episode, I just, I see all of this stuff happening and... I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to know what's happening so that at the end of the day, you can remember it's not your fault, right? If you feel absolutely insane and you feel like you aren't able to make it work and like you don't know where all the dollars are going and you have a budget and you've like you're 
fine-tuned down to the minute and you've got all these schedules and it feels like the system's about to break or collapse and you just don't know whether or not you can make it work or you're struggling at your job or one more comment from somebody else with anti-mom bias is just going to make you burst into tears, you're not wrong and you're not alone. This system is entirely screwed up. There are so many ways that we could be supporting working parents much, much better from the way that we've designed work to the way that we talk about mothers and parenting in the workforce to just simply acknowledging the fact that we don't have a world where people, they're one of the partners is staying at home. We don't even have a world where the family looks like a nuclear family anymore. The family has changed so much. From this, when I think about like how do we deal and how do we solve this, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I talk a lot about minimalism and making choices that are different than the status quo and the philosophy on our homepage at Startup Pregnant, which is that we don't have to do things the way they've always been done. This is why I'm such an advocate for women entrepreneurs and why I think so many women are taking matters into their own hands and starting freelance businesses or flex businesses because the work world can be so hostile and toxic for parents. It's really hard. We don't have all the solutions yet. Some of the solutions are bigger than the individual. So it's not about you just working harder, pushing harder, finding balance, or like, I really don't want to swear on this podcast for F's sake, self-care, right? Like this is not a problem that an individual can solve. When we have systemic problems across our society, and then we ask the individual to solve them, that is cultural gaslighting. What we need across social level is we need paid leave at a minimum of six months, paid leave for all. I don't think it should be employer-based because then you're required to have a job. And the employers, especially the small employers, the entrepreneurs that are trying to get a company off the ground should not be saddled with this added expense. We should have government-based institutionalized paid leave. It should be a no-brainer. That's number one. Number two, we should have better childcare options and more affordable childcare for early childcare from one to five. Number three, school schedules should be aligned with work schedules. Four, we should reduce our overall obsession with work and working late into the evenings. It's fine if you love work. I love work. I would love a 16-hour day here and there. But until we solve the relationship between work and childcare, we are actually stifling our economic and innovation potential because we are taking half of of our brain power, the women out of the equation. We are not going to be competitive on a global stage if we don't create a place where all of our talent, and that includes women's brains, can play and engage in the work world. We also need better this is my urban planning background coming up, but we also need better housing options. There's a shortage of housing across the country. There's not enough density and urban density, and we need daycare centers to be in or closer to workplaces. That would reduce the overall commute times that we have, and it would create more proximity between people so that we can have better child care options. Thank you for coming to my podcast slash TED Talk. These are all the things on my mind on a Friday morning. I hope I hope this makes you feel like you're not quite as insane. And if nothing else, I also hope it makes you feel like you're not alone. The daily logistics can be the quagmire of parenting everywhere. <laughs> you're not alone. It's nuts. Come over to our Startup Pregnant community group and talk about the daily logistics. Let me know what you think of this podcast episode. I will see you again for more interviews on some of our next and upcoming episodes. 
And that's it. That is a wrap, everyone. If you are interested in finding out more about the Wise Women's Council for next year, please go to startuppregnant.com slash WWC. That stands for Wise Women's Council. We'll have the link in the show notes and you can also find it in the main menu on our website. The Wise Women's Council next year will have three different tiers. So you can access the community at three different in three different ways. The first way, you can join the community for the social space and for the monthly calls. The second way, you can join a small group coaching program to go deeper with a group of six to eight women. And the third way, you can work one-on-one directly with me and we will have one-on-one private calls to really unpack and unlock big moves in your life or in your business. So check it out. There's three different access points next year. We haven't ever offered this it this way before, so we're really thrilled to see what y'all think. Go check out startuppregnant.com slash WWC for the Wise Women's Council and do apply by January 20th for early bird pricing. The prices will go up if your application is not in by the 20th. I hope to see many, many of you applying and here is to an amazing 2020. Hey everyone, just a heads up and a reminder, if you want to listen to our long form Ask Me Anything sessions, they are 30, 45, and sometimes 60 minutes in length, and they we go deep into questions that people have. If you want me to look at your business, you want me to comment on your marketing plan, or you have a question about parenting, pregnancy, or anything in between, we are taking listener questions and I answer them in a monthly Ask Me Anything fireside chat. It's available only to our Patreon supporters. So if you back us at the $7 a month level, you get access to this private podcast. You can get access to all of the past episodes, which is pretty cool. So if you're missing the podcast while we're on our hiatus and you want to take a listen in to these Ask Me Anything episodes, go over to Patreon and become a monthly backer at the $7 per month level and you'll get access to all of the future episodes, as well as all of the past episodes. Keep in mind that you are also supporting the work of Startup Pregnant and our growth in these early days, and that matters a ton. Every dollar helps and counts, and we appreciate so much and are grateful for your support. Patreon.com slash Startup Pregnant will take you right there. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Did I spell that right? Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Yes, patreon.com slash startup pregnant will take you there. The link will be right here in the show notes. You can go straight there. $7 a month and you get access to this entirely exclusive Patreon only podcast. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And, you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.